Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. So, um, hello everybody. Welcome to another one of our practice manager updates. Um, we're delighted to see you, um, those of you who are with us today, and also those of you who are joining us on the podcast later. As ever, we always do record these as a webinar, recorded webinar, if there are slides for you to see, or just as an audio um, podcast for you to listen to. And we reserve an hour for them but often they're not um, but if there's an hour that's absolutely fine and we'll take up the space we need so do please use the q a box to ask any questions you've got um we will always try and answer what we can here and now and if we can't we will always publish the answers on the website when we publish um, the podcast so please answer anything you've got it is absolutely a time for you to ask any question that's a burning question we try and offer things on the agenda that we think you might be concerned about or that would be helpful but there might be something else that we've missed or that you'd like more clarification on always happy to do that so my name is louise greenwood and i'm director of education and training at wessex lmc's i'm delighted to be joined by our two directors of primary care michelle lombardi and lisa harding this morning um Today we are going to be focusing on online access and we will have Adam um, Horton Tuckett joining us, but I think he's struggling to come in at the moment. So what we'll do is we will carry on with the rest of the agenda and when Adam does appear, then we will um, introduce him and we will ask him to um, to join us with a discussion about online access because the, um, the deadline is coming up, isn't it, at the 31st of October. Does seem like we've talked about this an awful lot, but it, there's all, all something, always something else to say, isn't there? And always more challenges to address. So um, we will come to that in a minute when we have got um, Adam with us. So I think we're going to start, Michelle, on a little bit of um, a few bits about updating on flu, please. Yeah, that's right, Louise. So the first one I wanted to talk a bit about was flu coding, and I think at the last PM webinar a couple of weeks ago. We had a query come in from a practice around um, incorrect coding being used by pharmacies and really just wanted to highlight that we have raised this with public health and we're um, continuing to work with them to get an answer. So as soon as we've got an answer in relation to that one, um, we will come back to practices. The other issue that we just wanted to mention is that we believe that there are some inconsistencies with the data flow for the school-aged IMS teams and pharmacies which um, we believe won't affect payment. However, um, public health are asking practices just to monitor the situation with information coming in. And if you've got any queries around that, please do contact the um, public health IMS and screening teams um, if you've got any concerns or issues. So that was the first one. The second one is around um, flu vaccines, particularly the cohort aged 65 years and over. So I think this was in the primary care bulletin this week, but we've also had um, a query from a practice, particularly around this, around this. So this relates to the 65 years and over and the flu vaccines that are used for that cohort. So the vaccines that um, need to be used and have been identified by the JCVI are the AQIV or the QIVR. And I think there is um, a question that if you run out of those, are you able to use the QIVC? So the guidance states the QIVC vaccine is only recommended where AQIV and QIVR are not available. And we thought it would be quite useful just to read what's in this, the enhanced service specification so it's clear. So QIVC may be offered only when every attempt to use an AQIV or a QIVR has been exhausted and that the commissioner may request evidence um, in relation to that before reimbursement is agreed. 
So really would just suggest that like, any contact with local practices or if you contact the IMS and screening team, um, that there's email evidence that you've done so, so that you've exhausted every attempt. Those are just a couple of examples of where you might access additional um, vaccine. And that also that QIV, that QIVE vaccine is not recommended by the JCVI for those 65 years and over, and they mustn't be administered to these patients. A couple of other things just to highlight that obviously um, within the annual flu letter, it does identify each cohort. And there's a really useful summary um, in a poster that you can access. And uh, we will pop these links with our podcast recording on our website. And that also there's national guidance where um, patients may have been inadvertently given the wrong flu vaccine for not that one wasn't recommended for that age group. So it's really just to highlight that those pieces of guidance. And also in our flu top tips on page 13, there's a table of vaccines um, uh, that you can use for each cohort. So lots of information. We'll make sure those links are with our podcast on our website. Brilliant. Thanks, Michelle. That's really helpful. Yes, we've got the flu top tips. We've also got the lunch learn on, on the flu campaign. So if you wanted to take your team through that, that can sort of be a good way of sort of introducing the team to what's going on. Although you're probably well underway with, with that by now. Um, Michelle, there's just um, a comment come in. Um, I've had some something back. Um, regarding the pharmacy recording, they've clarified the data is extracted via the organisation, so it won't pick up the pharmacy data as per previous years. However, what is the point of a flu pharmacy code when it's not used, which is interesting? Right. <laughs> yeah, so thanks, Ben. That was useful to have that in. Thank you for that. Okay, um, Lisa, I think we're coming to you next. Something about the um, NHS app, please. Yes. Thanks, Louise. It was just to cover an item that was in the primary care bulletin around NHS app messaging, just make to make sure practice, everybody knew that NHS app messaging is now available to all practices using Acurex, iPlato or MJOG. Um, so more patients can now apparently receive batch messages from their surgery on their NHS app, um, although, of course, they must have notifications switched on to receive the messages. Um, this should save money as NHS app messages are free to send to patients, unlike text messages and letters. Um, it should also ensure that patients know that it's their practice contacting them, provide patients with one secure place for healthcare messages and appointment reminders. Um, NHSE have published some more promotional materials and a bit more guidance around messaging on the app, which again, as Michelle said with the previous item, we'll put on the website when we publish the recording. That's great. Thank you, Lisa. Um, and just going on from that, something else with the primary care bulletin, which you may have missed it, it's this care navigation training still available. So very much um, advocate that um, PCM managers can nominate one member of staff, ideally reception staff or care navigators involving triaging requests um, for some free, fully funded virtu um, virtual care navigation training. And we would just always encourage you to, if you can possibly, take up any offers that are free, fully funded uh, for primary care from NHS England. We do know it's difficult to release staff we're absolutely aware that is tricky um but i would also just let like to just remind you that there are the looking after you looking after your team looking after your career services so that can be personal coaching it could be team coaching so they'll run sort of virtual away days for you and by zooming in sort of uh, i think it's after seven people and they'll run sort of a half day for you and also for your career so don't just think about that for your teams think about that for you too um, but i'm always very conscious that if um, primary care don't take up these offers and NHS England will say, oh, well, you know, they don't need them. And actually, they do need them. It's just not haven't got the time um, to spare. So just consider those free offers. So, so the care navigation training and the looking after you, which would be really helpful. Um, so I think we're going to go to shingles next, please, Michelle. 
at Mialui. So I think we all recognise that the shingles, the new shingles programme is incredibly complex. And there is a spreadsheet that identifies who the eligible patients are um, in the various um, uh, phasing of the new programme. And we just wanted to really highlight, again, this was in the primary care bulletin this week, that there is um, some new guidance that has been issued by NHS England around the changes of the programme from the 1st of September, um, which provide details around the, uh, the, the vaccine eligible cohort, the clinical codes to use and the um, how payments will be supported by through GPES, GPES, yeah, GPES. Um, so just wanted to highlight that this information is available. We do have it on our website, on our vaccine IMS uh, guidance for practice page. So, um, but I'm sure we'll also pop it with the again with the recording. That's lovely. Thanks, Michelle. Yes, that shingles program is quite complicated, isn't it? Um, well, so we're very pleased that Adam. Horton Tucker has joined us. So Adam is Information Governance Consultancy Lead for NHS South Central and West Commissioning Support Unit. Um, and we've asked Adam along today, who's always had some technical issues. So I'm very glad to see you, Adam. It's very good to see you. Um, and then we're going to talk about online access to medical records as the deadline of the 31st of October creeps ever closer. So I just wondered, Adam, whether you could sort of set the scene for us at the moment. And then I'm sure we'll have some questions. I know Lisa's got some um, questions for you. So yeah, tell us where we are at the moment. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the deadline of 31st of October is obviously rapidly approaching. Um, and I think there are some different schools of thought, aren't they, Lisa, to the degree of what that means by then as to what you've got to have set up. But the the general understanding, as far as I get it, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that by the 31st of October, practices should have been in a position to offer to all patients the ability to online access the records if they've got access, either through the NHS app or the um, EMIS app or whatever app they may actually be using. That's prospective records going forward, which we, we talked about probably a year or so ago, and it's been often delayed, hasn't it? But now it's got to the point where actually, yes, the intent is to go live by then. Um, I understand the BMA have issued some guidance and some correspondence recently that talks about data protection impact assessments. Um, and it might be worth, obviously, because that, that's my sort of area of knowledge, just talking a little bit about that from that perspective and, and sort of giving people a, a briefing as I see it from that perspective and obviously welcome questions, discussion, etc. Um, data protection impact assessment, as many of you will know, is a, a tool we're supposed to use under the GDPR, under the General Data Protection Regulation, where as an organization, you are doing processing that could be considered high risk. Um, and the idea being you do the impact assessment and you assess the risk and you determine whether it, it is high or whether you can mitigate it down through various controls to an acceptable risk in that stage. Um, playing in a perfect world for a moment, the idea is you do the DPIA before you start the processing. Um, and you get it all sorted, signed off and delivered. And if you're happy with everything, then of course you, you kick off the processing that you need to do. BMA, I believe, have issued a, a template DPIA um, because whilst it is the responsibility of the controller of the data to do a DPIA, so therefore the argument is every practice has that responsibility, the Information Commissioner's Office very much say in all their guidance around DPIAs, and this has often been the case, you can do once and share. And so it's uh, totally appropriate to use what other people have done, tweak it, amend it, just use it because you agree with it or whatever the circumstance might be. So it's not a question every practice would then have to start with a blank sheet of paper and start scribbling out their own DPIA. They can beg, steal, borrow and use from wherever they want to at that stage as long as they're happy as the organisation that the DPIA they have then brought together, which could, I say, just be literally a copy of somebody else's, but they're happy that everything in there is correct from their perspective in terms of what's been to be done um, 
and what from the risk perspective they feel is the risks and the mitigation controls to prevent that. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely worth sharing. The BMA have got a template, as I say, that looks looks reasonably good from what I've had a look at. From the perspective of um, one other aspect, though, I don't think has been covered in the, the, the BMA guidance. And I, I would not, it would be unprofessional of me to not mention this, that if you go through a DPIA process and in the conclusion of that process, you identify a risk, you class as high, and you've been through whatever mitigations you can put in place to reduce that down, but you still class it as high, you are supposed to consult with the regulator in the Information Commissioner's Office before you commence the processing. And I note with interest in the BMA's template, for example, there is a risk that is identified as high even after the mitigation they put in place. So if you to use the BMA's template, look at that risk particularly, because if you still re if you still identify it as high in your own judgment, and that's totally up to you to do, then arguably you do need to consult with the information commissioner before you start that processing, which might send some of you into a headspin. Um, don't necessarily put the risk down as below high if you don't feel it is. Um, if you really truly feel it is a high risk, then obviously you've got to look at, at how you can take that forward. Um, the reason I highlight that is on the basis that We'll play the game of what if for a second. What if something went wrong later on in the line and you put everything in place? I can't really give you a decent hypothetical example off the top of my head, but if something did go wrong and the ICO was to get involved and they say, we are playing really what ifs here, it's, it's unlikely, of course. Then they would ask, has a DPIA been done? You'd say, yes, here's the one we did. They would note a high risk in there. They would look at their records of consultation and may note that you haven't consulted with them, in which case that's never going to look in your favor. Um, at that stage. I mean, you could, of course, assess the risk yourself. You could personally feel it's not high, in which case, fine. I'm not, not saying it has to be high. I'm just saying if you go to that point of assessing a risk as high and you cannot mitigate it to lower than that, Article 36, he says, semi-confidently, and the GDPR does require you to consult with the ICO. Lisa, does that help set a bit of a scene? I know there's a lot of other concern and thoughts floating around all this, isn't there? That's really helpful. And I wondered... Shall I try attempt to quickly summarise what the BMA is saying, just building on what you've already said? And then yeah. I wonder if people might want to come in with some questions um, and uh, we can just open it up to see if anybody else wants to ask anything. Um, and perhaps you could sort of comment as well if, if you think there's anything else to just to pick out really. So just to say, first of all, um, our newsletter will come out probably at the beginning of next week. So we will cover that in, 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 in a bit more detail there and we'll provide all the links. Uh, we can also put the links in the chat today. You may already have heard directly from the BMA as well. So I did. Th I think they did also email out. They have slightly amended their guidance since their original email earlier in the week. So it's worth just checking their website to see the latest. So the, the general drift from the BMA is that they're still concerned about the rollout. Um, which, as you know, the deadline is 31st of October. So they've published some guides for practices around what they, they consider practice the practices options to be. Um, they're advising that if a data controller wishes to process personal data in a new way, it must by law carry out a DPIA, da uh, data processing impact assessment. Their conclusion is that providing patients with access online to the medical records in accordance with the new legal requirements is a new form of processing. So so that GPs as data controllers need to conduct a DPIA. Both the BMA, as, as Adam said, they've got a DPIA, but there's also an ICO version uh, template that you can use. Um, you, you don't have to use, as I understand it, a, a particular version. Um, but as Adam said, you, you can adopt 
uh, one that's out there that you think is good and representative. Um, so if a practice has undertaken a DPIA and has concluded that not all the risks they've undertaken have been mitigated, then the BMA is suggesting that some of these risks could be mitigated by batch coding with a 104 code and then asking all patients if they wish to opt in to access. Um, they've produced some separate guidance on this, on how to create an opt-in model um, if you decide that that's the best way to mitigate the risks. Now, this, of course, would have to be secured by the 31st of October because that's the date by which the contracts require you to give access to patients, less any exceptions. Um, so, so that, in a nutshell, I've tried to summarise what the BMA is saying, as I understand it. Um, would also suggest that you may want to talk to your data protection officer. They might have a slightly different perspective or may be able to build on that guidance. There's also some useful resources on the NHS digital website. There's a general practice readiness checklist, which does cover practice policies and procedures, staff training, patient comms. It has a link to that um, ICO DPIA. So there are some resources out there as well. Um, but I don't know if anybody has any questions, comments. Well, um, I coming in. Time scales are tight. It's the time scales. That's, this is very vexing. Of, of course it is. Um, so just one comment. There's no time to consult with the ICO, etc. NHS England have set the deadline for the last EMIS extraction is next week. And I'd Yes, and Adam might want to come in on that. Just on the EMIS extraction, I'd seen a comment from the BMA saying that EMIS have said they're prepared to run more into November. Um, I think that's on their website, but I'll, I'll try and find that. But I'd seen a suggestion that they might be prepared to um, run more, but I would suggest you need to get that from the horse's mouth as well. So go to EMIS directly? I, th I think so. Okay, another comment's coming. Are we able to turn off patient access via EMIS as it's confusing to patients now there are different systems and we presume the clinical add-ons are not contractual? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by clinical add-ons. Yeah, Jan, you might need a little bit more information about that, sorry. Um, and I, I, I don't know, but do we know about the two systems? Again, I don't, uh, I don't, that could be a question that's posed on the NHS Futures platform. They're responding quite quickly. So Michael Costa in the in the national team, I think, is responding on some of those technical details. Okay. And Jan, if you want to listen a little bit more um, on the Q&A, that would be helpful because we're not terribly sure we'd be able to answer that clearly because we're not terribly sure of the detail. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Is it um, not, sorry, Louise, is it not yeah, related to patient access is another app that patients can use to access online appointments? prescriptions etc and I wonder if Jan is asking whether the online access to medical records will then be activated in that particular offer to patients and that's I think that's a really interesting question as to whether yeah, I think that's what she means by clinical add-ons I may be wrong Jan can confirm but I think it's a good question because actually the NHS app is where everybody's being directed but I, I think perhaps they've always had there are other apps running before this and they may have a cohort of patients using those so I think that's what Jan may mean, but she might confirm there's comments coming in. So, okay. Um, Louise, if I can add a bit in about yeah, the, no, the no, ICO no, consultation, no. just a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, totally get and understand that time is, is limited. Um, and I can't imagine the ICO is going to want X thousands of practices across the country suddenly dropping a, a note to them next week saying, we want some consultation with you on this because they won't have the staff to, 
to respond to it, even though the law does require them to respond within a period of eight weeks. Um, but that's immaterial, really, from from this perspective, because obviously that's not really what you're struggling with. I would say personally, I mean, whilst and taking Natalie's point in the chat, is the DPI a mandatory? Should there not be a centralised one? I say that well, the BMA one you can certainly use, and I say I've had a good look through this sort of overview of it, and it's a good one. They say the only thing I have to highlight, I say, is that risk they remain as high. What they're saying there is there isn't the time and the resource for obviously practice to check records prior to allowing the overall access to it for records that might necessarily be exempted from it because of concerns, safeguarding reasons or whatever. Um, so it does come down to your level of time and resource, which again, I totally understand is going to be zero probably to do any of that checking between now and, and the end of the month. Um, and at that stage then, do you yourselves, do you yourselves score that risk as high that information might be accessible to someone who might be caused harm by by that data, given this is not going to be all your patients. It's only going to be those with the app and who use it. And I've no idea whether that's a small or high percentage. I can't give any sort of thought on that. And it's the perspective going forward access rather than the retrospective access at this stage, I believe. Um, it's not going back in time yet, because um, that would be an even bigger can of worms. Um, and therefore, in realistic terms, whilst the impact of such an in incident would likely be high, of course, is the likelihood of it truly anywhere higher than sort of unlikely, should we say? Um, and therefore, I, I would question, and I'm not in a position to make a judgment to specifically, I can only go with the sort of knowledge and experience. So the, way, the reason that BMA have scored that as high is because it is the emotive point around this. Um, but would it realistically from a practice individual point be high? Because if it's not high, if you if you look at that risk yourself and put it as medium, should we say, rather than high, and, and the ICO don't have any sort of scoring mechanism to say above five is high or whatever, they just say I high risk. They, they use very sort of subjective terminology. If you feel it's not high, then you do not have to consult with the ICO. Um, and so that, that's a key point. They say uh, it would be remiss of me to come on this call, say use the BMA template and not mention they've left that thing in there that has that little trigger there because you guys need to know that's there because I'd hate it if it came the other way and you ended up in in some sort of concern because they hadn't you highlighted something as high and they came and said you haven't consulted with us. Um, but I say, and I'm not telling you to score it as medium or low, of course. I'm just saying realistically, give it a good thought as what you score it as because in likelihood terms, it might be low. In impact terms, it might be high. Is the trade-off between those as an overall risk score, which is always a bit subjective. Is it medium or is it still high? Okay, thanks, Adam. Lisa, did you want to come in? And just to mention, we have fed back up to the BMA on, on Adam's really useful comment there that, that actually that duty around consulting with the ICO, so we have flagged it up to the BMA and said, were you aware, are they going to cover that off and further guidance? So we'll wait and see. So just to go back to Natalie's point, is the DPIA mandatory? Yes. There we go. Thank you. Categorical. Um, so going on um, from Philip, isn't it a bit late to consult with the ICO? We've talked about that. We've had this force on as I'll go live on the 17th of October. There'll be a risk ongoing, especially when we lose control, i.e. transfer to another practice, DIA completed by our DPO and also privacy state statement to be updated. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's helpful to know, Philip. Thank you. Um, another comment, does the online access show the non-clinical staff's full name, i.e. reception admin staff. We have a duty to protect our staff and we are concerned that this information may be shared. Um, and this is just a comment that currently we don't use name badges to help protect, so we are helping to protect the staff. So do we know in the medical records if the reception admin staff's full name is recorded? 
So I think if they put an entry on the record, and I need to double check the details, I will get some more guidance. Yes, I think potentially it would show. I believe there is a process if there are exceptional reasons why, for instance, a particular member of staff has been targeted uh, by a patient or something that that, that that can be hidden. But let me go back and just double check that. But that was the conversation quite a few months ago, um, but I will double check. Adam, do you know any more about that? I'm not close enough to the system to know what you see from that end. I mean, certainly their activities recorded on the audit trail. Audit trails are not always visible to the end user in the actual system, but whether it's visible through the app, I don't know. We'd have to look and check. Okay, so we'll look more into that. Um, Michelle, I think it looks like Jan's come back. You were right. Patient access was used for prescription ordering and online appointment bookings. So now that's an NHS app, this app appears better and more secure. So it'd be good to deactivate the patient access EMIS but not sure if we're allowed to do that. Do you, are you close enough to that, Michelle, to, to offer a comment? I, I, I'm not sure I'm close to the detail. I think if perhaps they've got to switch on online access and patient access app doesn't do that, then that's that means that they're potentially not complying with their contract. I think we probably just need to find out whether that's um, possible because perhaps they're then going to have to contact the patients that are on the patient access app to then transfer them over and get them to register um, for the NHS app. So I think we probably need to find a bit more information about that one. Thanks, Jan. Really good point. We will find out more about that. Um, So we are TPP. So these are TPP practices for patients who register with a new practice who already have online access through the NHS app with retrospective access. What's the process? Is it automatic that once a patient is registered, they can automatically see their records again through their app? Or is it only once the record has moved from applied to GMS? If we register a patient for system online, and I think their NHS app, they will only have prospective access from the date registered. Lisa, I wonder whether you can come in on that one. Yes, that's my understanding. If they had retrospective access... I think that the practice therefore needs to consider if there are new patient registration and they had ret- retrospective access to their previous practice, then they wouldn't automatically get that. The, the practice needs to consider whether that's appropriate and you can enable if it enable it if it is. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, this is an interesting one. If we if we don't comply by the thirty first of October, as we're speaking to the ICO, will we still be breaching the contract? Good question. That is the thousand, whatever the million dollar question is, isn't it? That is the most important thing. What do we think? My I'd, ask, I'd ask a contractual lawyer, unfortunately. <laughs> You'd have to put it that way. I mean, I looked, Lisa, you shared with me the section of the contract yesterday, and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a contractual law expert either, but I I, I was a bit puzzled by some of the words in there about what this meant, this concept to provide is. Um, and I even, I even looked at the dictionary definition provider and it says to make available to um and so there's the question of patients who are given the option to have it before the 31st, because obviously some patients, I know some practices looked at doing opt-ins, et cetera, or is it after the 31st, is it everyone has it unless the opt-out or you decide they shouldn't have it for various reasons? So I don't know. Um, in terms of the data protection legislation, you say that if you're between a rock and a hard place, if, you, if you're consulting with the ICO, let's say, because you consider the risk to be high, now, I'm not to be honest sure what the ICO will say to you other than, have you thought of this, that or the other? They, they're not going to be experts in how to address the concern. Um, and if the concern is literally the resource to do this, they probably have a little, little comment to say about that because they, they can't comment out your resources or not resources to, to do the checks you feel you need to. Um, 
they may help you with sort of assessing whether they believe the risk is, is high or not, um, but they're, they're a further step removed. Um, in terms of data protection, for example, you say, if are you, is it risking breaking a contract or is it risking breaking data, data protection legislation? The whole idea or the whole issue with data protection legislation is not black and white. So it's not like a question of you've gone over 30 miles an hour, therefore you're speeding. It's here's a principle you need to apply in terms of risk. You've, you've assessed the risk. You're doing something about it. And so you're doing the DPI is complying with the legislation. Doing the consultation with the ICO is, if you feel the risk is higher, has to say it again, say that again, is complying with the legislation. If you felt the risk wasn't high and you carry on with the processing, again, you're compliant with the legislation in general terms, but it, it's not a black and white answer as to whether you're breaking the, the data protection legislation. Whereas obviously there may be some more clarity, I guess, depending on the words and getting a contractual lawyer involved as to whether you're breaching the contract. Because I think, I think personally, it's slightly interpretive, but I'm no expert to say that, so please don't quote me. And just to add that, I think, and again, it's really difficult, isn't it? I think the BMA are more nervous about practices breaching data protection legislation than they are. There's, again, have a look in the BMA guidance, a, a comment around being more nervous about that than they would around the contract. But... You know, who, who knows? This is a new situation for, for everybody. Um, and of course, really I guess, Lisa, call. is if you throw in the other view of the patient who you're concerned about harming, and we'll see if that was to come to pass, that, that's bad news, bottom line, isn't it? Yeah. That someone has been concerned, upset, worse by the, the data they've seen access to or other people have seen access to at that stage. So whether that's, I mean, that, that arguably probably would be a breach of protection legislation anyway, but the fact that that would happen is probably unpalatable. In the worst case scenarios, I can guess. More comments coming in um, from Philip. We've always said, and our concern is the risk is high if a patient sees something that human error has missed, has stopped, missed sort of locking down or hiding offline. I think defining high risk is quite subjective, and that's something that you mentioned, Adam. We have processes in place like everyone else, but something will slip through the net, and that one will be the one that causes the angst. So, how can we reduce? To lower medium risk, and I just wonder what what can the DPO do in all of this? Is is, that, is there a role for the DPO in helping you with the risk? The DPO can only really advise on the methods that you think about reducing that risk down. I mean, taking Philip's point there about human error, that will happen regardless. Um, at some point in time, in some shape or form, whatever controls you put in place, however, how much training you put in for staff, how much checking in various records you do at that particular stage how much of a cautious approach you take to say, actually, we would exempt this person from having access because we've got a little bit of a concern here rather than a massive concern. Um, the ICO, if you take the sort of actions they can take against organisations, they've often said, and you can, this is borne out by the actions they've taken, they can't really take an action for a pure human error because um, we can all make a mistake. We can all email the wrong thing to the wrong person. That will happen regardless of what controls you put in place on any given day. Um and so when they investigate things, they do look at the cause, they do look at the, the situation, they look at the impacts or the potential impacts. They've got various options open to them. They've got reprimands, which they seem to use quite a lot nowadays in terms of almost a slap on the wrist. It's a public thing they put on their website saying this organisation was reprimanded for, but it's that is then the end of that. Um, they've got the option for an enforcement notice, which is where they find that something has gone systematically wrong. And they're, they're always looking at policy process and, and things around it to say, well, actually, is this sufficient or not? So let's say you put in what generally seems sufficient controls to check these records and provide the access in the right way. Information's coming in, you're maybe marking that as sensitive and that's a human element. You've got to look at that to make sure that is 
is marked as not to be available through the online access, someone will slip up somewhere along the line. Absolutely, they will. But if your processes to do that, your training to do that are as reasonably good as they can be, then you won't get any reprimand or any further action from the ICO because it's like anything. I, mean, I could this afternoon send an email to the wrong person just by clicking on the wrong link, um, despite all the training education and things we have in there. So I say, clearly worry about human error, but you can't eliminate it entirely and don't expect to get any significant reprimand from the, the regulator if anything did go wrong because it was human error. But I say, if, you, if your policies, your processes and things aren't robust or whatever, then that's when they will start to, to look in more detail. And they, they could give what they say an enforcement action, basically sort this out and we'll come back and check you've done it. And I think that's quite, seen... reassuring, quite reassuring, Adam, I think, about human error. Um... And despite the fact, obviously, the ICA has been able to find for the last 13 years, we've seen two on general practice in the last one, I think it was 2016, possibly. So years yeah. ago, let's hope touch wood, it's not going to be next week now, but I mean, cursed it or whatever. But yeah. The human error they cannot take an action for. Well, that's because I think general practice and practice managers take this very seriously. So that's probably why they, you know, there hasn't yeah, been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so Philip, so yes, obviously it's been a little bit of investigation while we've been talking. Yes, the names, you can see the names. This will be the admin reception names. Um, and Jan actually confirms that. So obviously the full names are going to be on this, um, are going to be available to be seen. Um, going on, patient choice to choose between apps, even though we requested to use the NHS app for the whole lot of benefits, for example, free text. Um, the patient access can't be disabled. It's a platform, same as the NHS app or Evergreen, etc. The settings in the clinical system apply to all. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, difficulty is there's no audited way to identify from when they have previous access, when, for example, transfer, transferring surgeries. So this is a lot of work again for us to keep on top of this. We were talking about this, Lisa, weren't we? We were just talking about the redactions. Do they do they come through? And I can't remember what what um, what conclusion we came to on that, Lisa. Can you remember? So I saw a suggestion a few months ago that it, it would, there would be something to do that. What I haven't seen is that, and I don't know if that actual, actually happens now, whether the, for instance, the 104 code tracks through so I don't, I don't know. I'd be interested if any practices are able to check that. Adam, that's probably not your area of expertise, but maybe it is. Okay, that's fine. But so, I mean, these are all the crucial things, aren't they? Because as I said, we don't want to do all the work again. That's madness, isn't it? Um, so another comment, if a new entry is recorded after go live, which has a historic problem, i.e. domestic abuse with a problem date from 2010, will this show? So this is that if a new entry is recorded after Google, well, I'm guessing, yes, it will, even if it's a historic problem, if it's a new entry. Um, unless it's I think it would if you've applied the correct code. Say again, Lisa. I think it would if you've applied the correct code. It would show. show. You'd need to apply something or either redact, wouldn't you? Yeah, or if you didn't think access was appropriate, you'd have to apply the 104 code. Yeah, I, I agree, Lisa. I think... So the clinical system, I would assume, would look at the date. It's Even though it's dated 2010, it would be the date it's entered onto the medical record. So therefore, they probably would show. Therefore, as you say, Lisa, the 104 code needs to be, or the sent marking is sensitive, that that code isn't then shown. Thank you. I'm um, going back to the TPP. Um, issue. TPP guidance, so this is about patients registering with a new practice. TPP say for existing online service users, they will receive access from the date of the full online record access conversion. Historical coded access will persist if the patient already has full record access, this will persist. So that is quite helpful. Thank you, Debbie, for sharing that. Um, 
fully it's just worries about the seriously staff think about what they record in the records and how factual and not using abbreviations even though we do as much training as we can clinicians are not great at thinking about this ongoing so a patient can see something can be offended just to keep it in mind i think you're absolutely right fully, but you've got to it'll be ongoing training ongoing reminding won't it for everybody um whether they've been that perhaps a long time or a short time and what, whatever area they work in um and the 104 code tracks through but they're still talking about transferring the hidden offline coding so this Things aren't resolved at the moment, are they? There's still some unknowns, which makes it slightly more, slightly less comfortable than it might. Um, that is the end of the questions. Is there anything else, um, Lisa, Adam, you think it would be helpful to share with our audience today? Um, oh, this one more popped in. Um, thanks for the clarification regarding the new historic entries. When a record is summarised, this will therefore show historic entries as part of the new access. If unknown coercion is taking place, this could cause, cause harm to a patient. Yes. Um, that's it's um yeah it's a good point thank you Ben so Lisa Adam anything else if you were a practice manager now what would you what would you be doing this afternoon I'm a bit gung ho I guess I would be saying I'm going to do this on an opt in basis but that's not that's me not advising that's me giving a personal opinion because then at least I'm meeting part of my contract and I'm not causing so much risk but but I've got, yeah, I, I don't have the experience or the knowledge or the what you guys are working with at all. And I think the takeaway for me is, is from Adam's comments is about the sort of process, which, you know, it so often is with organisations such as ICO and CQC. I think I would just want to reassure myself that I've got the DPIA in place. I've got the policies and procedures to back it up. I'd looked at staff training. I'd done the comms with, with the staff. I'd done patient comms. I think for me, it would be about making sure all of that was in place, running it past my DPO, making sure they'd advised and looked at it. And I think you can only do what you can do. And I think you had a really interesting conversation, Lisa, didn't you, with Matt Perkins, one of our practice manager supporters, who's a um, practice manager of great experience and has got had big practice on coastal uh, medical in Hampshire. And you had a conversation about, um, he went through these processes a few years ago, didn't he? And he I was actually very reassuring about, actually didn't create a lot of work, but this is what I did. Um, and I think that, that that's, as I said, that's available as a podcast if you want to listen to that. It, it was reassuring, it was helpful, it was very practical. Um, and I think that was, yeah, the take home was, don't worry about it too much, Lisa, wasn't it? And I think the other bit from, from what Matt was saying, he had the support of the safeguarding GP within the practice. And I think that's the bit to have some support from the partners for what you're doing. And I think that should be the safeguarding lead. That's a really good point. Um, thank you so much, Adam. Oh, just as I say, we finish the questions. Another one just pops up, doesn't it? Just to clarify, are we saying that every time a patient registers with a new practice, they will only ever have access from the day they register? Sure, this will put patients off moving practice if they always lose previous access. I think we need to check that because I think they get access from the date that access was enabled in the practice. In any practice. So that, that stays with you when you're moving. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I, I think... I think they get access from the date that the practice enables prospective access. I wasn't aware that they would, if they had retrospective access already, I wasn't aware that that would track through. Okay, so they, they've got it They've got it today. They move in six months' time. So will they get access again at the new practice? Is this from, I think, I need to check, it's from the date that the, the practice enabled but I'm okay. not explaining myself very well. I need to, I need to 
put it on the website because I think it's from the date that the practice enables access for everybody. Okay, I think and Philip's also coming with just sort of asking for clarity. We're going to clarify that because I think that the more we talk about it, we might get ourselves in a pickle and actually not be very clear for you. Yeah. So I think that we'll leave that there. We know there are things still to answer. We hope we've been able to answer some of them. Adam, you have been incredibly helpful, as you always are. No we're very, very glad that you managed to, managed to join us today and that was fantastic. And no doubt we will come to you with more questions. Um, do please keep asking your questions. As you know, we do our very best for this, but we are, we are not the authorities and we just try to work with what we've got. Um, and we're not always close to the clinical systems, obviously, as you are. So please do ask, keep asking your questions. We will answer. We will ask Adam for his advice. And we will. Uh, I'm sure Adam would come back and join us on another one of these yeah. sessions. Um, it, uh, thank you, because you've been before. Always happy to. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, and thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining in and answer, asking the questions. That's exactly what we're here for. Um, and hopefully we've reassured you with some of it and at least given you some action points um, for what maybe the next steps could be. Um, so I think that all there is to say now is that do join us for our next webinar, which is going to be on Wednesday, the 25th of October. We're very aware that's the middle of half term for lots of people, um, but we're still going to carry on. So if you can't join us um, at the time because you're off from holiday, have a lovely holiday. Um, and if you can join us, that would be great. Um, but we are obviously recording it as we always do as a podcast for you to listen to later. And there's just one thing that we're just working on. We're very aware there's lots of um, discussion about enhanced services and costings at the moment. And we're also aware some practice managers have come saying that they're new to being a practice manager or they're new to finance. They'd like a little bit more help. So we do have a costing spreadsheet on our um, on our website. It's on the front page, but we'll put the link in when we pop, pop the um, publish the podcast, um, which you might find useful as a starting place. And we're going to record a little video of how to use it. Now, some of you don't need that at all, but some of you might like it for reassurance to check that you've got a sort of all the parameters you're thinking of. So it's a costing spreadsheet for enhanced services. We will record a little video as to how you fill it in and what sorts of things you need to think about. And that might help you over the next couple of weeks as we know you've got things to decisions to make over enhanced services. And there's going to be a new tool looking in greater depth, but we're just analysing that at the moment to make sure it's as helpful as we want it to be and, and it, that isn't, there isn't anything confusing in it and the spreadsheet's sort of um, unbreakable. So we're doing a bit more work on that. So we are aware it's some, some help you need. We want to do it well for you and we want to make it right and accurate so that it is a helpful tool and doesn't create more problems than, than we suggest it might solve. So watch this space and we will get that for you we will be back on wednesday 25th of october and thank you once again to adam to lisa and michelle and have a lovely weekend thank you very much bye-bye wessex lmc's supporting you and your practice